0: Helen Russell is the author of How to Be Sad, Everything I've Learned About Getting Happier by Being Sad. Helen was formerly the editor of MarieClaire.co.uk, writes for The Guardian, as well as writing a longstanding column for The Telegraph. She now writes for magazines and newspapers around the world, including Stylist, The Observer, The Times, The Sunday Times, Grazia, Metro, Stella, and The Eye Newspaper. Her first book, The Year of Living Danishly, Uncovering the Secrets of the World's Happiest Country, became an international bestseller and has been optioned for television. She has spent the last eight years studying cultural approaches to emotions and regularly speaks about her work around the world, including at TEDx and in her hugely popular Action for Happiness talks. Helen spent 12 years in London, but currently lives in Jutland, Denmark with her husband and three children. Welcome, Helen. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss How to Be Sad. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. I was dropping my daughter at school this morning and telling her what I had coming up, and she was like crying about going to school. And I was like, well, my first book is How to Be Sad. I was like, oh, maybe this is a good book for you. (laughs) And she's like, I don't want to be sad. But anyway... (laughs) It's hard. Yeah. I have two
1: sick kids right now. And so it's this, it's this whole trying to say it's okay to be
0: feeling like this. This will pass. This is part of life. Yeah. It's an ongoing. I'm sorry about your kids. Two at once. That's no fun. Yeah, it's busy. Yeah. Wow. Well thank you for taking the time to talk about your book. <laughs> okay, so for people who aren't familiar with you and all of your amazing research and work and your best selling book and like all this amazing stuff, can you talk about how to be sad and why you turned the happiness research sort of on its on its side to reposition how to have a more joyous life essentially and why it's important to be sad. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd spent the last eight years researching into happiness
1: worldwide. And back when we could, I'd go around the world talking about my work and meeting people and interviewing people. And I kept coming across this same question time and again of people who had perhaps lost a loved one or been made homeless or been made redundant, who would still ask, but why, ha- how can I be happy? Why aren't I happy? And it, it came to me really that actually we are so obsessed with the pursuit of happiness that we are quite phobic of feeling sad. So from a professional perspective that was that was my routine and then also from a personal point of view, I I lost my sister when I was young and it was something that back in the 1980s just was not talked about. People didn't talk about grief. People would cross the road to avoid having to, you know, make any comment to my mom and me about it. So I had been, I'd very much grown up with the idea of what we don't talk about can't hurt us, but we know now the science shows that this is wrong. The reverse is true. So I really wanted to address this.
0: Wow. Anyway, in the book you write about it, you call it the very, the very sad thing, all capital letters and why and how this happened. But is there, could you share what happened with your sister? Are you willing to talk about it? Yes. Yeah. So when I was, I was almost three and my sister died of sudden infant
1: death syndrome. Oh. So, you know, out of the blue, there's nothing anyone could have done. There's nothing, you know, that, that could have, could have altered, but what, what could have been different is the way we were, people handled it afterwards. So there was no counseling at the time. There was nothing like that. My mom and dad were in despair. They also had this, this young toddler, me to look after. My parents split up soon after just a few few months after my dad left and nobody really talked about that either so this this loss this living loss was something that we had with us as a family forever and something that we just didn't talk about which I think from from speaking to people from doing my research seems actually less uncommon than we might think so many people go through similar experiences so everyone experiences loss it, it won't all have been the same and I talk about there's bereavement, which is when someone dies, but there's also living losses and there's and there's grief and there's grief over losing my dad. I didn't have a relationship with him either. So I, I was kind of keen to address. We've all had stuff happen to us, and it's how we process that. And so, all of our our losses may be may be varied, but the process for getting through them in a in a happier,
0: healthier way is similar. So that's what I've been trying to pursue. Wow, I was so struck by the image of you as a little girl drawing the picture of your family and having your mom having to tell the teacher, like, "Okay, I know she drew a picture of the four of us here, but her sister has passed away and her dad's gone." And you were like what? He's gone too? You know, what do you mean? It just broke my heart and your attempts with your dad to, you know, get involved in his new wedding, for example, and want to wear a tiara. And he's like, no, and you're like, what? And you have to deal with like the orange backpack guy, like showing up, dating your mom. I and mean, these are like a lot of things just like right off the bat to have to, to cope with on top of loss. And oh my gosh. Anyway, you just like, immersed us in like the the young version of you and my heart sort of broke for you immediately and then have been like rooting for you now, right? With everything. So of course this is your chosen field. It's like, oh, well, that makes sense, you know? (laughs) yes
1: and actually a therapy a therapist pointed that out many years later that's no surprise at all I chose to you know research and write about happiness because I was also scared of being sad I had no experience with that so I thought well of course happiness is what we must all be wanting we've all read studies saying you know happier people are healthier they, they live longer but in fact that's it's not quite the case these this research mostly comes out of the US which and Americans are outliers in the desire to avoid happiness avoid sadness excuse me so actually being terrified of being sad is what makes us sick and in in east asian culture or in japan where they've done comparisons we look at that actually you can feel sad and it has no impact on your health so being being sad only makes you sick if you're terrified of being sad. And yeah, as you say, it's this whole, this this stuff I'd grown up with and the ideas that many of us grew up with, like wanting to be a bridesmaid at my dad's wedding, because I'd seen on TV that, you know, that the, the daughter from the first marriage gets to maybe wear a tiara, maybe ride a pony, that's just what got to happen. And in all the glossy TV we watched growing up,
0: yeah, I got some slightly skewed ideas about the world. Oh my gosh. And of course there were only like five shows, right? And we all, everybody watched the same thing, <laughs> <Right>? Yeah. Which, <laughs> which I kind of miss now because there's like, so, you know, there's something that sort of bonded everybody at the time, right? We had like the same commercials and the same shows. And, anyway. So you also talk in the book about the differences in the different types of depression and the difference between depression and sadness and how we're so quick to say that we're depressed when actually we're feeling sad. Sad is okay. Sad is what we should be feeling. It doesn't mean we have any sort of clinical diagnosis. How do people tell the difference between I'm feeling sad and I should feel sad and I'm feeling depressed or I am depressed? So this is super interesting. And not to minimise depression,
1: I have experienced depression as well throughout the last 20 years, but depression is a chronic mental illness that needs help. But sadness is a temporary emotion that we feel when we have been hurt or something is wrong in our lives. So sadness can be awakening. It's a message that can tell us what's wrong and tell us what to do about it if we listen and actually studies show that if we aim to avoid sadness even just a little to the extent that many of us probably do on a day-to-day basis, we put ourselves at greater risk of normal sadness tipping into to something else. So the actual diagnosis of depression comes from the American Diagnostic Manual for, for Mental Health, so the DSM, and this focuses on the symptoms rather than the cause. So It doesn't really bear in mind what's happened to you to get to this place where you may be feeling low. And it's if you meet these five of these nine criteria for more than two weeks, you can get a diagnosis of depression. Now, interestingly, there used to be a grief clause so that you couldn't be diagnosed with depression within two months of a bereavement. But the latest version, the DSM-5, got rid of this. Because, you know, of course, depression is serious and you are going to need help. But it means that it does open the possibility that a lot of normal sadness therefore gets pathologized and therefore gets a clinical diagnosis when maybe it is that we've just lost our, our spouse or that we have you know, lost our job or you know, been through a global pandemic, just for example. So. Yeah, I think it is problematic. It's not as black and white. And all of the, you know, I have spoke to the best neurologists and geneticists and psychologists, psychiatrists in the world, and they all agreed brain science is inexact. There's so much we don't know. So I my rallying call really is just to open our minds a little bit and ask, you know, what's what's happened to you rather than what's wrong with you? and And not write off any kind of medication or talking therapies, but just thinking a little bit more broadly that actually a baseline for all of us has to be around, coming to terms with and accepting normal sadness that we will all experience.
0: And so why, why do we get sad? Like what is the evolutionary purpose of sadness? Like I understand anxiety, right? We're afraid, fight or flight, like it was to save our lives. We could run away from animals. We could, I know mean, all that stuff. But like, what is the purpose of us crying and feeling like we can't, can't get out of bed or you know, not being able to do anything because we're sad. Like why, why have sadness? it's such a great question so the tears part first off so charles
1: darwin famously said that there was no purpose in tears at all but we know now that when we cry we reduce our levels of cortisol it soothes us because we are expressing our emotions and sadness is that emotion that makes us stop in our tracks it's it's like the ruminating time it's very much problem solving it makes us more creative because if we if if we're happy for example we carry on doing that same thing to get the happiness if something is wrong and we feel sad, it's that message to slow down and stop and think about, oh, maybe there's a different way I could be doing things. Sadness, it improves our attention to detail. It makes us fall less prey to the halo effect, whereby we think the beautiful and rich usually can do no wrong, and we are less prone to the fundamental attribution error, whereby we think people mean the worst towards us. So it makes us much more clear-sighted. It increases perseverance. It promotes generosity. It makes us feel more connected to the people around us. So we feel sad because it's a time then we need to stop, take stock, think, okay, maybe there's a different way I could be doing things and to really sort of cement our connections to the people around us. So in that way, it feels hugely useful. It's it's the time when we should feel most connected to our fellow human beings. And if we're trying to push it down all the time, then then that's a bit of a problem. And a sadness also makes us quite grateful for what we've got. I mean, the the philosophers going back to the Stoics have have believed this and research from the University of New South Wales has found that we are more grateful when we're feeling sad. So it's a, it's a really helpful emotion for stopping and taking stock, I'd say, which I think roundabout now feels very useful indeed.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Do you think those are like temporary or persistent? Like, can they seep into your personality for good? Like if I'm sad a lot as a child, will I grow up to be a more grateful person? Or am I more grateful in the aftermath of that sadness episode? That's a great question. So there's, there's a couple of things there. So our predisposition to you know, happiness or sadness is down to
1: genetics and early childhood experience and lifestyle. So the first two we can't control largely, but the third we can. So that kind of depends. But there's also looking into antidepressants and what's happening in our brains when we take For example, SSRIs, that they are trying to stop the serotonin from leaving our brain so quickly. And scientists are still not quite sure how antidepressants work. And you think, goodness, after all of these years and all of this money and big pharma and what have you, nobody still quite knows is the answer often. But one theory is that we have these scars in our brain. If we've experienced something, perhaps from a young age or perhaps repeatedly, we get these sort of scars where we are more prone to think in a certain way. I tend to think of them as like doom rivulets in your mm-hmm. brain, just sort of like this puddle that goes through, which is, uh, it can be a fairly depressing way of thinking about the world, but there is there are some theories around that. But then there's also neuroplasticity that we can, we can change our brain and we can learn new things. So there could well be uh, a sense that some people are more prone to this, but I would also add that there is hope. There are things that we can do, and that's helpful.
0: I've never heard SSRIs described that way. It's almost like the rainstorm washing away the, the pads in the sand, right? And then it, like you get a fresh start. Is that what you meant so by the, the rivulence? SSRIs
1: are supposed to help the serotonin stay in. But what's weird is that when you take SSRIs, they um, you get the side effects straight away, but you don't get the effects of stopping the serotonin drain away straight away. So something's going on, uh, yeah it's just really quite disconcerting when you speak to these enormous brains of geneticists and psychiatrists and
0: they just sort of say, well, shrug a bit. Well, we don't know. Oh my (laughs) word, what hope do the rest of us have. But do they, but they're in favor of them though. I mean, do they say that SSRIs then prohibit those other good things from coming as a result of sadness? Do you know what I mean? Ah, that's interesting. No, I think, I think largely
1: that most I mean, to generalize, but I would say that most professionals err on caution and and would say, you know, stick with what you're doing, but complement it with, with other things as well. So the neuroscientist I've worked with on, on the book was uh, Dean Burnett, and he's very much, you know, both and, and or and just trying to try everything because there's so much that we still don't know. So I guess if if medication is working for, for someone, then they should absolutely stay with it. But for some people, medication doesn't work. And then you're thinking, okay, well, what else can I be doing? And for some people, medication may not be necessary because there are other things we can be doing to accept and understand our normal sadness
0: before we get to that stage. You know, I think part of sadness is that it's not, even though, as you're pointing out, of course, like it has good side effects, if you will. Right. But in the course of a normal day, it's not very socially acceptable. Like my daughter can't go to school and cry all day because, you know, she's like, my teacher will get mad or you just can't. You can't like be productive if you are crying all day. You can't like go do your job if you can't get out of bed. You can't. So I don't feel like society is particularly well set up for big bouts of sadness at unpredictable times.
1: I think that's really interesting. I think there's a, another couple of things there. So firstly, I guess emotional regulation that many of us don't learn as a child, that we may have been told if we fall down, or you get up again or if we're scared we'll we'll be told or oh, there's nothing to be afraid of. We have our emotions minimized and then we come to almost distrust them as children because we are told what we're feeling is not valid in some way. And it's so easy to do, you know, if a, if a child is set, you're like, "Oh, don't cry, stop crying. But actually, that might not be the most helpful thing to do, despite our inclination to want to make things better for our kids. You know, we love them. So labelling that emotion and helping them understand that granularity of it is really helpful for for kids. And if we didn't get that as, as a child, we can try and do that for ourselves as adults. But you're right in terms of culturally, yeah, rest and relaxation are not valued in our society. Act activity is what is prized and that is a is a bigger problem i think you know we don't measure our productivity by how many acres we harvest anymore so our productivity and the amount of time we spend working becomes a proxy and that that is a problem because perhaps there are some days when we are not going to be most effective. There's lots of interesting research into women's cycles and hormones and and what different parts of the month we would be most effective at doing different tasks, which I find fascinating. But again, as you say, it feels sometimes like a luxury. You thinking, well, I have to get this done today. But I I think there is much room for flexibility and and trying to, yeah, adopt a bit more of an understanding approach that would help all of us to be more productive long-term.
0: So true. I definitely have like, I don't know, days where I'm just like, I am too sad to work. I can't get anything done. I can't even deal with my computer. I can't sit at my desk I am just, this is, this day is, is a watch. But then like the next day I have twice as much work to do. So, you know, I don't know. So in terms of- I'm a of, big fan <laughs> of the idea of if a,
1: if a day is really bad, you go to bed early to get it over with and then you got, oh, and you've got longer the next day. And that's
0: always, yeah, that's always pleasurable. That's always nice if you can do that. What do you think we should tell our kids or what do the researchers sign to say? I mean, I I feel like the takeaway I've gotten and that I try to do is instead of saying, oh, you shouldn't be scared necessarily. You're like, I understand like that video must have totally freaked you out. (laughs) I get it. However, you know, there is no one hiding in the toilet or something like that. You know, like, so you don't need to be scared because that thing is not happening. But I understand you feel scared because of the video, but maybe that's not the right tactic. Well, I mean, again, the sort of the the researchers and and the
1: studies that I have, have read are around Again, as you say, it's not minimizing it, but it's saying, yeah, that that would be really scary. If there was a monster in the toilet, that would be really scary. Yeah, fair play to you. But, you know, let's look together and and I'm glad that you told me about this and and let's think about this. And I think, yeah, trying to put ourselves in, in the shoes of a child and try and remember what that felt like. I mean, It's, it's terrifying. My, my four-year-old right now has chicken pox, which they vaccinate for in the U S and I'm so envious, but she's just miserable. Life feels awful. And so it's reminding her like, yeah, that, that does suck right now. You won't feel like that forever. I know this is awful. And I'm really sorry about that. It's, it's sort of sitting with that pain, which I, I do think, and I'm thinking back to, to ourselves as children, I do think that is a really helpful and would have helped you feel quite comforted in that time.
0: Yeah, I feel like. Well, I'm so sorry about the chicken box. I had the chicken pox, <laughs> like right. the worst thing ever. Oh my gosh! But at least it's over with at an early age. It gets worse as yeah. they get older. So, yeah, I, I think that the pandemic for kids in particular has been so hard. And I think, you know, I have two, you know, two 14 year olds, and then I have an eight year old and a six year old. And the little guys, like because of all this Zoom school and all these like optional things, like they don't they don't buy it that school is essential you know like it feels like an option whereas the older kids and everybody else and like people our age or whatever like it's it's not a question of course nothing changes school but now they're like after a year and a half of like, this week is remote, this week is not remote. It's very hard to be like, no, no, school is is required. And even as a parent, it's like, uh, what do you even do with that? Like, of course you're sad. You'd rather be sitting on your computer, like hanging out with the dog. <laughs> like, so it's hard. Yeah. That is a tough one. Yeah. Feeling things are optional
1: because of the last 18 months, everything's felt slightly optional. Yeah. It's really tough and it's really tough. And that kind of, you know, that connection and the whole, I think, you often want to go to school, for example, to see your peers. And everyone's been lacking that connection over the last 18 months which is so
0: hard as well so especially hard. at a formative age. Oh my gosh. No, your book could not come at a better time which is, you know, <laughs> good for you I guess. Wait, I so tell tell, this. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about the process of the writing and the research and and how you decided to structure the book cuz you have, you know, your own history and then you and you tell it in a very narrative way but then you mix it up with the experts and, you know, just how did you arrive at this particular you know, way to package up this content and did you debate other ways and all of that? Well, my thing is I often, when I, I read a lot of fiction, I read a lot of non-fiction. Whenever
1: I read nonfiction, I sometimes, writing's very good and very funny and everything, but there's no soul and there's no heart and there's no narrative arc and there's no, like, why do I care? Well done, you're being very funny and witty, but why do I care? And so for me as a reader and as a writer, it's really important to to have have the, a story go somewhere, and it happens that my life in this case is a story that has gone somewhere. So I think I I wanted to be honest about my own experiences because I can't ask other people to do that if I'm not willing to do it myself, and also because part of my my big kind of manifesto is shaking off the shame around around sadness and apologizing for how we're feeling, which is something we're really good at in the UK. But just the idea, oh, I'm sorry, I'm so, sorry, I'm crying, or sorry for you know pouring out of this emotion that that actually that's not that helpful so i felt that i wanted to share to encourage others to do the same and and that has been a really interesting response that people have got in touch and and shared their own stories very personal often but i also want there to be the science there as well i this is not i am not a scientist i am a journalist and so for me it was really important to speak to as many experts as i could and then bring in some names from popular culture and, and some people who i've admired for a long time who i think have dealt with interesting things in in ways that we might not have expected. so i've got someone who you know was addicted to drugs for many years i've got people who've been through bereavements trying to really understand the different experiences that I may not have had so that I can I can sort of offer those up as well and try and understand the, the things
0: that, that underpin all of them because there are some universals that that I think we could all benefit from and then when did you decide to start your podcast, How to Be said, Which, by the way, I listened to. And I was like, ooh, I love how she did her introduction. And I'm like, how can I change my introduction? Oh, like, I don't know. Maybe so I much. need like this cool British voice that you have going here. So introduce- <laughs> I will
1: happily. <laughs> <laughs> so the book I really wrote before COVID-19 and then finished finished off the, the final edit after the, during the first lockdown, actually. But during the lockdown, oh my goodness, well, I missed people. I mean, as you must have found also, it's just, I just... That is part of what gives me energy is talking to people and having long form conversations and and meeting new people I just hadn't done it. I mean, I, I got a new neighbor and I was so giddy with excitement at meeting someone new. And I thought, I can't put all of this on this poor guy who just moved in next door. So I thought, I know, I'll start a podcast. And and it felt like because the, the book was coming out, it felt like I had something behind me to just say, it's not just that I'm just being incredibly curious. It's let's carry on this conversation. And so that's been really interesting and, and speaking to people from all walks of life. And it's a great, you know, it's a great excuse to say, oh, actually, I've always wanted to speak to that person and let's have a conversation. Totally, totally. To just get an hour with someone is just, is a real privilege. So that's been fascinating. And yeah, we just started series three and had some amazing guests like Desmond Tutu's granddaughter and daughter. And yeah, I've got a rock star coming up this week. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, this is now my new favorite podcast. So <laughs> I'm very excited. I'm super interested in all of the stuff you're doing. I was like a psychology major, but just from a personal standpoint, like, I find this research and all of it just so completely fascinating. And the fact that you sort of explore this underexplored area, I found to be just like, you know, and the way you did it too was really, really great. So like, what what have you been sad about lately? That's a great question. Well, I still miss friends and family. So
1: things are opening up a little bit where I am. I live in Denmark right now. And so I'm getting to see family a bit, but not much. I mean, there's people I haven't seen for two years now, and that's really hard. And, you know, best friends and my kids are not growing up near the people who we thought were only an hour's plane ride away. Suddenly that distance really stretches when you can't get to people. And, you know, life is, is hard. I think that's what really taught me a lot as well is that I started researching into happiness and I tried to live Danishly and I tried to adopt all of these happiness principles but at the core it's it's about connections like you know our personal relationships are one of the key indicators of happiness worldwide so if those parts are compromised that's a massive hurdle and that's something that is an ongoing process of trying to work on and trying to build that up again. So I have lovely friends near where I am now, but I think I I'm missing people and, and those personal connections quite a lot right now.
0: I'm sorry. I totally know how you feel. <laughs> and wait, you're, so you're, the, the year of living Danishly, your bestselling book prior to this is now a TV show is, or it's in the works or something. Tell it me has about been that. Optioned.
1: It's optioned. been optioned. It's been optioned. So, you know, TV land, who knows what yeah. will happen. Yeah. There's a lot of meetings where people say nice things. So we shall see. Got it. And what is your next project going to be? Well, I'm very interested. I'm researching and writing a little bit about Hans Christian Andersen, the great fairy tale guy. So I'm looking into that right now and speaking to a few people about some other radio projects. And yes,
0: we'll shall see. Try Maybe to that can be your subtitle: "The Great Fairy yeah. Tale Guy." <laughs> no, that guy. Yeah, that guy. Big yeah. hat. Fine. <laughs> I love it. So, what advice would you have for aspiring authors? Oh well, I think well. So I.
1: Uh, trained as a journalist and so having and then I worked and uh, became an editor and I think that's been really helpful is having that editing head as well as the writing head so it's the discipline to to get your your butt in a chair and do it even when you don't feel like it and then it's having that other critical brain which you don't want on too much because then you will sabotage everything and not get anything done but to be able to edit the work and edit and edit, and edit again till it's in a state that you are happy with to share with someone else. I think that it's the discipline and, and the diligence and yes, trying to come from it from a creative angle. Yeah. love it. It's not easy though. No. It doesn't make you rich and buy you a yacht.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This has been so fascinating and really enjoyable. And thank you so much. I really just, I loved it. Thank you. So lovely to meet you. Thank you very much for having okay. me. I hope your kids feel better soon. Thank you. <laughs> calamine <laughs> lotion, lots of calamine. Yes, everyone's pink right okay, now. Okay, perfect. Okay. <laughs> All right, take care. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.